this week on the It's a Monkey podcast. I don't think there's a catch-all solution that you can apply to anyone who wants to become an entrepreneur and whether or not you should get an MBA or whether or not you should have work experience beforehand or even get a college degree. I think it really depends on who you are and what you want to do. Hello, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO and co-founder of Manage Flitter. It is Wednesday, the 8th of February, if you're watching us and listening to us live on Periscope. And it is Friday, the 10th of February, if you're downloading this on your podcast app or even watching us on YouTube. We now upload our podcast to YouTube. So you can head on over to YouTube and subscribe to our channel and you'll get pinged up uh, when we release a new episode. Um, as usual with me is my co-host, Kate Frappel. Kate, thanks for joining us. It's good to be back. Now, if you haven't listened to our previous episode, episode 79, you really have to head over to itsamonkey.com and listen to our previous episode. We interviewed David Hanemeyer Hansen, who is the CTO and co-founder of Basecamp, which is a project management um, software that has over 100,000 paid users, incredibly successful business. And we chatted to David about all things relating to startups, Donald Trump, the tech industry, and Donald Trump. That podcast has already smashed through all of our listenership records. David is a very smart and very opinionated guy, but not in opinions for opinion's sake. Um, He's really um, well thought out answers to, to the questions that we put forward to him. So if you haven't listened to that show, please head on back to that show and have a listen. I'm pretty sure you will enjoy it. As always, this week, we've got a fantastic show coming up. We will chat to Ryan Frankel, who has written a book about his startup experience. He um, started a company called Verbalize It. He's the former co-founder and CEO of Verbalize It and has written a book called The Making of an Entrepreneur, Lessons from a Winding Journey Towards Entrepreneurship. And I chatted to him a little while ago about his entrepreneurship journey. But as usual, we're going to kick off the show with um, some goings-ons in the tech industry. Our industry moves at the almost at the speed of light, and there's always things happening. Kate, this week, I believe Google has has rolled out some, some features to what they call G Suite, which is a combination of Gmail, the documents, the file system, the calendaring system that um, companies use um, throughout the organization. Yes, so uh, Google have released Cloud Search, I think, in the last day or so. Basically, it allows you to search within your company's Google files. So all your emails, docs, spreadsheets, events, and they've even added a corporate directory. So you can connect with other people that you work with, get their contact details. I believe there's also a easy way to either like start a hangout with them, send them an email, and even call them. So I think this is, and also one of the, the use cases is to help surface some of the information that remains locked up in, especially bigger corporates, but even in companies our size that someone does a document, um, people aren't aware of it. When people want to find it, they can't find it. And there's all this amazing information inside an organization, but he's locked up. And now um, Google are trying to allow for searching across different elements across the organization to try surface bits and pieces that may be relevant to someone else, right? Yeah, they're, they're doing that. And there's also some uh, a type of machine learning which sort of guides you through your day, so recommends what it thinks you're going to need. So it'll give you like your calendar uh, and any relevant docs related to that. And so it learns what you're going to need from its 
files, I guess. What would be quite interesting would be as a default in an organization to have document sharing set as on as a default, right? So you have to, if you want to make it private, then you have to toggle it off. But as a default, all the documents are public. And then if you're working on a document, say you're working on documentation around a a new, setting up a new server, that Google can be predictive in a way and say, hey, there's there's 10 documents in the organization that seem to be matching a little bit what you're talking about. Click here to view them. Yeah, so I believe that's sort of what they're doing, but uh, they're maintaining their current permissions. So if you're if you're invited and you currently have permission to folders and files, then you'll be only able to see those. Right, and currently in the current Gmail suite, like the one we use internally, uh, it doesn't allow searching across different users and and the organization in such an easy way. Not as easy, no. Right, no, and not in. Uh, business and enterprise plans which this one's targeted to right and i'm sure it's probably really useful user permissions and across different departments and organizations and they've yeah, thought we about don't it always want people seeing everything you know like you might only want to share a document with two other people the interesting thing with google and the the google suite i can't even keep up they've, they seem to have renamed their suite of products a few times i can't really keep up with how they've gone from you know, google Docs to and then Drive and is Docs the same as Drive but Docs includes spreadsheets and the word processor but they, they seem to have somehow approached, they sort of seem to have missed a lot of the nuances of the way organizations use these products, right? I mean we've even hit up ourselves and we're a small organization, we've even hit up ourselves a few times against limitations a year ago when we were making some changes etc. So um, this is where I think you know the the Microsofts and they've been at this game a lot longer and they might have worked out how the way how organizations like to do things. At the moment we um, we hook in another program called AOdocs, which allows you to organize your files and also I think the big benefit is you can't delete files if someone else owns them. So for right. example, if you create a file, Right. I can view it and edit it and stuff, but I can't delete it by right. accident. Right. I've never quite understood why we use AODocs, but I know you guys have a yeah. reason well, for it. Yeah, well, apparently the cloud search will eliminate the need for AODocs. So poor AODocs is now um, going to be redundant. That's the problem if you build if you build businesses on other businesses, which we've done at Manage Flitter. Our business essentially sits on top of Twitter and soon to be Instagram as well. It's fantastic because you can leverage the success of another platform that's got existing users, but you are exposed to what's known as platform risk. Um, and Joe, who's just who set up the AODoc, she said it's about ownership. Um, she's watching us on Periscope. I think she's our most committed Periscope fan <laughs> um, number one fan <laughs> actually why don't we why don't we why don't you go get joe and we'll get her to explain exactly um, what aodox does what, what aodox does and maybe that might fill the gap of us understanding what this new google product is so we're just going to hop on out of the studio and call joe who rolled out the the aodox across which is a, a product that plugs into the google docs product that allows for some more control so this is josephine pinto who's the business operations manager um, at manage flutter and joe you were the one that actually were involved in transferring some of our google accounts etc a year ago so tell us about this whole aodocs and have you read about the new google 
um, product that's that's being released across the enterprise, the G Suite? G Suite, yeah, that's live. The one that I'm really hanging out for is Team Drive. So what's Team Drive? So Team Drive is more about the ownership of the documents that you've got on Google Drive. Is this part of G Suite? It, it will be part of G Suite. I'm not exactly sure. I'm thinking it's actually going to be released at the end of the year, maybe next year. Right. The way that this is related is AODOCS allows us to make sure that the business files are owned by the business. Not an individual. Not an individual. it's a problem. It's been a problem. In the, and this is what I was referring to previously about Google not working out things properly is that previously if someone left the organization and say they worked on an important proposal right and you want to deactivate their google accounts away goes all their documents was that correct that's exactly right so aodocs was a way where you could decouple the ownership of the document from the individual user that's right and it, it gives you more power and control over who you're going to share that document with now has g suite plug that hole not yet still not it's still in it's still on an individual basis so still if you have an individual tied to a document and you deactivate that account that document is gone yes exactly and that is why we use aodocs right now okay so it's a mystery solved Joe, thank you very much for joining us. And the po- by the way, how's your? We had you on a few podcasts ago about talking about your Android phone. Um, how's the How's the Android phone going? What um, What's it called again? The Pixel. The Pixel XL. Uh, the Pixel. How's the Android phone going? It's actually going really well. I've I've gotten used to it. I can all the disadvantages. I've just I obviously didn't need them. I've, obviously, they didn't make that much of an impact because I'm enjoying the phone right now. I guess the only disadvantage is the accessories. Accessories being apps or actually hard hardware accessories of cases and things like that. Yeah, hardware ca- cases, extra little bits that you can. Apple use. have always been the had the most options for that. Yeah, you that's know, right. Always had the most interesting options for that, but um, and also the watch, the Apple Watch. But I believe there's new some new Android Wear watches coming out as well, so we'll have some some choice. But most um, you recommend that phone. You're happy with it. Yeah, very happy with it and I do recommend it. Better than the Samsung, the blowing up Samsung? Don't know about that. I'm actually hanging out for the... Uh, the Note 8? <laughs> the Note 8. <laughs> You're a diehard, Joe. I am. They, they, they love people like you, a real brand evangelist. So um, do you, have you found any advantages in having native Android in the latest version? Do you get a lot more frequent updates or is there any time where you feel that you've benefited from having such a clean version of Android? To be honest, I haven't noticed a difference. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's all the same to me. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Josephine Pinto, the business operations manager at Managefitter, which basically means she does everything. Thank you for <laughs> joining us and giving us that information about AODOC. So interesting to, if you've had that issue in your organization before where someone leaves and you don't want to lose their documents, give um, AODOCs a go. Thanks, Joe. No worries. Thank you very much. <laughs> we've got a, We've got a, an office full of um, smart people here. We're lucky we can just drag them into the studio. That was Joe. So that's G Suite. Um, 
which we'll post a link to. We post a, a link to all these stories on itsamonkey.com. Um, other big news stories, Kate Twitter have been pushing hard on fixing up some of their problems with trolls and, and spammers, etc. And, they, um, and they've rolled out a whole heap of changes this week. Yeah, so they're uh, putting their money where their mouth is and rolling out changes to curb abuse and bad behaviour on Twitter. So they're keeping the mean uh, and unsavoury content out of sight. So they've put a few new changes in, uh, one of them being uh, a safe search preference, so you can toggle that on and off. Another one being they're automatically hiding inappropriate tweets beneath a show less relevant replies option. So you'll have your regular stream of replies and then there'll be an option at the bottom that says show uh, less relevant replies. So then you can see the potentially inappropriate ones. So the director of engineering, he's got a great Twitter handle, Mr. Donut. He tweeted out about a week ago, making Twitter a safer place is our primary focus and we are now moving with more urgency than ever. We heard you. We didn't move fast enough last year. Now we're thinking about progress in days and hours, not weeks and months. Twitter have come under a lot of criticism and in fact there were even rumours when they were trying to um, get bought a while ago that some of the potential acquiring customers such as Salesforce and Disney knocked them back because of the trolling and spamming issues. Now Twitter is in the difficult situation in that it is an open social media network as opposed to Facebook and um, which is and LinkedIn, which are more closed social media platforms. And as an open social media platform, um, I guess a little bit like Instagram. Instagram's got a problem as well with, with spam comments. Yeah, and an with automation. An automation. So open social media networks, definitely it's, it's, it's trickier to deal with it. That being said, they can always do a lot more. And it's good to see that Twitter are at least um, tackling this because they've, um, th- there's been a lot of issues with, with people leaving Twitter, even just saying, especially celebrities and sports people, etc., that just get slammed by trolls and they just say, I just, I just don't want to deal with this anymore. So... Um, I mean, one other thing they're doing as well is they're uh, going to be doing a better job of keeping banned users from rejoining the service in another name. Now, what I found interesting about that is they didn't say how they're going to do it, right? No, they don't want anyone to game it. Yeah, they don't want anyone to game it. And I was thinking, how are they going to do that? I'm not exactly sure because people can use multiple email addresses. They can even use multiple phone numbers. So how are they going to do that? I don't know. Not too sure. Not too sure. I mean, sure. the article we've got here says human reviewers and machine learning technology. So unless what they do is there's some cookie bits and pieces with an IP address, maybe if they see that something's come from the same computer with a the cookie, they'll push it through to a human and they'll check that. Um, I don't know, unless they've got some really smart technology. What worries me a little bit is... One of the issues that we face at Managed Flood is we have users that get caught up as false positives in some of their efforts. Yeah. And I'm a little bit concerned that some legitimate users are going to get hammered a bit with some of these new initiatives, um, especially initially. Especially, They'll eventually work it out, but I'm curious to see how they're going to get this right because that is not a simple issue to solve. It sounds something like in the human real world, it's quite easy to ban someone from coming to a restaurant you say you put a photo up there and you say don't let this guy in and it's simple on social media platforms and something like twitter to not let that same human just create new accounts good luck with that one yeah 
But in terms of false positives, uh, how hard is it to be banned on Twitter? So you must have to do something quite bad in the first place. I think there's very few people that they've actually banned okay. permanently. There was the, there's that one um, right-wing commentator. He's got a very long surname, so I won't even pretend to pronounce it. Um, he was going to speak at Berkeley a week ago and there were riots over his appearance there. He's a very, very divisive figure. Uh, he so Twitter banned him? Twitter banned him a while ago before this happened. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's the one that I'm aware of. I'm sure there are other instances. I mean, Twitter does have a terms of service and if you're in breach of their ter- terms of service, they can yeah. actually um, deactivate your account. Or usually what they do though, if you fa- both Facebook and Twitter and assume Instagram as well, if you breach or do something, they'll, they'll, they'll put you in jail for a while, right? Oh. So, and then they'll, I've, I've had even friends on Facebook that people like midwives and things like that that have posted images that Facebook doesn't like and they yeah, and turn they it off. turn off their account for a month and tell them that you've been a bad person and don't do this again and because of that you can't use your Facebook account for a while. So, so um, I, I do hope they, they sort that out because it's um, – I, I haven't – I mean probably three or four times in my life I'm quite a big Twitter user but I, I try to stay away from tweeting controversial um, things. Probably three or four times I've had – snarky tweets my way and it's it is quite unpleasant and it's 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 a little bit confronting so i I really do feel for the people that get hammered with hundreds and hundreds of abusive tweets and um you know offensive tweets it's it's not really what these social platforms are about and again it's very hard to balance the freedom of speech First, this trolling issue. It's a very difficult issue. It started in the days even with YouTube when YouTube YouTube comments used to be a nightmare. They were famous for being a nightmare. Then I think they locked it in with your real Google identity and that and that helped a bit. Yeah, I'm fairly sure you have to have a, a Gmail address now. And one of the most, most people do. They yeah. have to hook in a Gmail address to get into YouTube. And one of the strengths and weaknesses of Twitter is you don't have to real, reveal your... Um, identity which is bad because you can hide behind it it's good because say you know a kid in a in a conservative community can be anonymous and discuss and reach out to accounts that may be supportive of him and and not and its covers won't be blown over even in people in countries where there's no freedom of speech right True. Um, people can't tell who they are and that's a good thing so these are not straightforward issues at all and I'm glad I'm not the person that's given the task to say make sure people who have been banned do not set up another Twitter account because I'm not <laughs> quite sure but it, an, an interesting challenge nonetheless um, but most of us standard Twitter users will be okay I think we uh, won't be let's hope let's hope Anyway, you're listening to episode 80 of the It's a Monkey podcast. We put together an hour of informative chat around technology, startups, entrepreneurship, um, self-improvement, anything related to the entrepreneurship tech economy journey uh, we chat about. We're going to take a short break. And after the break, we're going to be talking to Ryan Frankel, who has written a book about his startup experience. And um, we'll be back after this short break. Hi. This is Dave from Manage Flitter. Are you interested in growing your Twitter account with real followers who are within your target audience? Manage Flitter's Power Mode feature provides pro and business users with powerful search functionality. You can search for keywords within tweets or Twitter bios, 
and even find accounts that follow your competition on Twitter. Once you have selected a search, you can take advantage of our expansive filtering options to ensure that you only follow the highest quality Twitter accounts. Using the Power Mode feature on Manage Flitter will also ensure that the follows you perform are not wasted on fake or spam accounts. Get the necessary tools to grow your Twitter account by signing up for Manage Flitter Pro or Business. Go to manageflitter.com for more info or email our support team at contact at manageflitter.com with any questions. You're back with It's a Monkey Podcast. We talk about everything tech, tech economy, startups, entrepreneurship, um, blockchain, um, cryptocurrency, all those exciting bits and pieces. And um, here at work, I sit with three computer screens open. And one of the screens has got my tweet deck with uh, tweet streams running like crazy. And uh, that allows me to pick up interesting bits and pieces and interesting tweets. And I, I divide my Twitter, my Twitter account into Twitter lists of uh, various categories of tweets I don't want to miss and entrepreneurs, etc. And a couple of weeks ago, um, one of the Boulder, Colorado entrepreneurs, I think it was Brad Fell, tweeted out about a, a new book, uh, uh, an autobiography uh, of an entrepreneur. And I'm, I'm a bit of a sucker being an entrepreneur. I just love hearing about other people's paths. And um, I was interested to discover an, a new book, uh, The Making of an Entrepreneur by Ryan Franklin. I'm happy to say I tracked him down. Now, Ryan is obviously the author of this book, The Making of an Entrepreneur, Lesson from a Winding Journey Towards Entrepreneurship. And he's also the former CEO and co-founder of Verbalize It. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Ryan, by the age of 28, you had worked for Goldman Sachs. You had received over a million dollar investment in your business. You had refused investment from a Shark Tank episode, I believe. You had bounced around between a few different cities. And the real interesting part of your journey hadn't even begun yet. No, that's right. Uh, the real journey began uh, when I was a graduate student at uh, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, all of the, the years of experience I had leading up to that point in time uh, gave me a lot of the tools uh, to become an entrepreneur. And when I was, uh, when I was in grad school, um, the idea sort of hit me square in the face for this business. And um, the next four years was really kind of a, a bumpy ride filled with a lot of highs, a lot of lows, uh, which eventually resulted in an exit uh, sale to uh, another technology company. And we'll talk a little bit about that exit um, a little bit later. But um, uh, one of the one of the parts in your book, um, I mean, your, your your book is is really you know interesting in the sense of as an entrepreneur, I think we don't realize that I wouldn't say we sanitize things to most people, but we leave out a lot of the gory little details and the setbacks and you know the million of de decisions and judgment calls we have to make and it's uh, I always enjoy just seeing um, you know all the bumps in the road and the gory details and something that made me smile was you obviously you had uh, received your MBA from Wharton which is is one of the the best schools in the world for that and uh, you went to the the tech stars um, talk on valuations and um, the person giving the presentation that said if you've got an MBA member on your team you can uh, discount valuation yeah that was funny we um we had just flown in from philadelphia out to boulder colorado um and we had just just rolled into the office and uh, i got there in the nick of time i barely i uh, was able to attend my graduation and my myself and my co-founder were both wearing our wharton fleeces um we were freezing in boulder colorado 
and we're sitting there and she saw our Wharton fleeces and decided to make a joke at our expense. And uh, needless to say, uh, it had the whole room laughing, but it also had us both a little bit concerned as to what we really got ourselves into. <laughs> I mean, what are your, we won't go on a, a major tangent, but what are your thoughts on the MBA and if you want to be an entrepreneur and there's, you know, it's, it's definitely, I think, you know, in 30, 40 years ago it was the quintessential um, you know, qualification, but uh, now it's now it's, it's it's really a little bit more complex, isn't it? It is, and and you know, I don't think there's a catch-all solution that you know a rule that you can apply to anyone who wants to become an entrepreneur and whether or not you should get an MBA or whether or not you should have work experience beforehand or even get a college degree. I think it really depends on who you are and what you want to do. Um, you know, for me, I needed to rebrand myself. I had done finance for four or five years. Uh, I didn't have an idea for an entrepreneurial venture, and I wanted to surround myself with uh, a broader group of individuals. And so for me, Wharton was was the fantastic uh, launching point for my own career. But, but certainly there are people out there that, you know, don't even graduate from college and become hugely successful entrepreneurs. So, you know, it really depends on, on what you're really looking to get out of it. And I think another interesting point that I read in your book when you were um, in the accelerator program, TechStars, which is a, a, one of the, the most well-known um, accelerator programs, it's really dawned on you then that business and startups is all about execution, not ideas, right? Exactly. I've always said it's a sort of ideas are a dime a dozen, uh, but it really comes down to, to how well we all execute on them. And, and how well you execute them on, on a business idea is really a function of you know, what skills and what experiences and to some extent, what relationships do you bring to the business? Okay, so let's just, um, you know, go back to that. You had you had this business idea, you decided to accept the offer to get into Techstars. Techstars, um, I think their standard terms are 6% and um, throw in a $100,000 convertible note. Is that correct? That's correct. Firstly, just step back, tell, tell us about um, that pr- the, the product and what problem uh, you guys were aiming to solve. So we were um, we were trying to solve a problem specific to travelers not being able to communicate when they are visiting a country uh, in which they don't speak the native language. And so the idea was born out of my own uh, unfortunate travel experiences where I got very, very sick while traveling abroad in China and couldn't communicate with any pharmacist due to the language barrier. And, you know, I obviously survived that experience, but it got me thinking about what solutions were already available for people like me who love to travel, love to communicate and interact with people from all walks of life, but don't necessarily speak, you know, every language under the sun. Sorry to interrupt you, but I had an exact experience as you had in Japan, in Tokyo. I never get sick and I've been snow skiing for a week and struggling to find the right food to eat. And I got so sick and I just could not communicate in a pharmacy even they gave me some pills it was just a bit of a wing and a prayer couldn't and and they sort of worked but I had the exact same issue I would have loved your app at the time yeah you you definitely felt the pain point then and so you know we looked around and we said okay there's you know machine translation things like google translate um, which at the time and and to some extent today weren't really all that high quality and on the complete other side of the spectrum, you had very, very expensive call centers staffed by professional translators and interpreters, uh, but the price points were astronomical. And so for a consumer traveling abroad, you were sort of stuck in the middle. 
And our focus was to to take the best of both, take the the sexiness and the technology and the sleekness of, of a Google Translate, but have the, the, the translation itself be powered by real people. And so we built an app that enabled travelers to instantly connect with another person, that person being a live translator, interpreter, uh, to help them facilitate uh, a discussion across language barriers. And um, you guys hit upon a problem that a lot of um, non-technical co-founders hit upon is uh, that you were missing a technical member of your team, right? We were. Neither of us were, were technical by nature. Um, and being in a technology incubator like Techstars, um, you obviously need need to grow fast and to grow fast, especially when you're talking about building a technology platform, you need people uh, capable of helping you do that. So that was a that was a big concern of ours going into the program. So how did you guys? Um, it's one of the questions I see on um, you know startup groups the most is how do I find a technical co-founder? The the demand for smart technical people uh, around the world is just through the ceiling. You know these people are just so sought after. How did um, you find your technical sort of co-founder? The way we worked, um, we actually never had a technical co-founder, but we did hire a number of technology colleagues and professionals. Um, and the way it worked for us was being in Techstars, coupled with um, the, the passion that we had for our own specific business, gave us a, a little bit of credibility in the community. You know, if a company is, is able to get into Techstars, they must have something going, was the kind of the mantra at the time. Right. And so when we got into Techstars, um, you know, we received hundreds of, of indications of interest from technology professionals to join the team. Um, we found a couple actually based in Boulder that summer uh, who worked out phenomenally well and joined us full time after the program ended. I think a lot of people don't realize you can actually, and of course it requires at least a little bit of funding, um, but you can hire someone and then retrofit, or not retrofit, but you can retrofit you know, co-founder onto them, bring them up as co-founder um, after they started out as an employee, technical employee and did well. Exactly. You know, you, you, you see someone do well, you want to make sure that they're engaged and excited about the business. And, you know, I've seen a dozen or so businesses in the last couple of years that, that I know personally where someone who came on as a fairly mid-level technology professional ended up taking a very, very senior CTO or, or, or VP of engineering role. So you guys were in Techstars um, and um, you, you had, had this idea and uh, I, I liked one of your demos you spoke about where um, you were doing a live demo, which is, always, which is always risky, even if it's just a SaaS product, let alone something where you're tapping into a human network and your first, um, your first go of it, didn't, no one answered the call and no one actually it didn't deliver, but then you tried it again and, and you got uh, someone good at the end of the line and, and uh, you obviously impressed people with your demo. Yeah, that was um, a very memorable experience. We um, we were in a uh, conference room at a technology meetup in Philadelphia, and we had a live demo. Uh, none of the translators picked up the phone the first time away around. And, and the way it typically works is if the first translator available doesn't pick up it, the technology cycles to the next one and the next one until someone gets your call, and no one picked up. And so I was, I was standing there on stage. Uh, I turned bright red. I was embarrassed. I, I, I think I luckily made a quick joke that our, that our translators were being bashful. Um, and then uh, we decided to try again. And you could hear the audience just 
pause, like hold their breath, like, oh God, please let someone pick up and save this guy <laughs> on the stage. And uh, unfortunately they did. It was one of our best uh, translators picked up. She gave a, a perfect translation and uh, you know, the rest, uh, we were off and running, but that was, um, that was one of the more uh, interesting and memorable moments from our early days. At least it gave you good content for your book, right? Exactly, right? Colorful content for your book. Exactly. I, I, I also say that to my girlfriend when we hit a lot of bumps in the road. I go, you know, it's going to be a great chapter. Exactly. You know, so, um, so, so take us through big picture um, um, from there on out, you know, right through to, to your exit and where you're at, the, the business side of things and the product, what's, uh, what happened to it and, and uh, you know, where it's at today. Sure. So we, um, we took the, the business through Techstars. Um, we went on Shark Tank, which is a TV series uh, here, in, here in the U.S. on ABC um, and decided to turn down uh, a couple of the deals in the aftermath. And we ended up raising uh, $1.4 million um, from a bunch of uh, great angel and small institutional investors. Uh, that gave us about two to three years of, uh, of runway. And we did a small convertible note, uh, a smaller convertible note, another 800000 or so. Um, so we raised uh, about $2.2 million in total um, between 2012 and 2016. And then, uh, you know, come towards the middle, of, middle to the end of 2015, my co-founder and I decided it, it, it might be worthwhile to, to look at exit opportunities. You know, we put some, some feelers out there, uh, connected with um, uh, an acquaintance of mine who was the CEO of another technology company. Uh, he and I have become somewhat friendly over the years. And so when, when he learned of our interest to position our business inside of a larger company, um, we had a number of, of good discussions, a lot of bad discussions, bumps in the road, moments when the deal was was dead or, or was going to fall through. But but in the end, of the, at the end of the day, um, they acquired our company in uh, in May of 2016 and, and have completely assimilated um, the product, the team, uh, and some of the technology into their own business where it sits today. What um, got a lot of questions around that? What um, what is their product? They are more on, they, they provide a translation software right. that, that enables companies to uh, utilize technology to translate their content, uh, whether or not the companies themselves provide the translators or if they lean upon, you know, our acquiring company to find the translators. This company that acquired ours was, a, was a very, very successful in building software specific to translation management. And the, the nice natural tuck-in for us was a lot of their clients were looking for translators to do the work themselves. And, and our acquirer initially didn't have a, a great solution for that. Um, and we also provided a much more instantaneous, uh, near instantaneous um, quoting tool to help companies figure out right away what it was gonna cost to translate their content. So. So both of those made it made for a natural tuck-in. And was it, you know, the type of exit that you'd hoped for in terms of, you know, ROI for your investors and obviously for your own sweat equity and, and blood, sweat and tears? No, you know, at the end of the day, you know, when we started the company, we thought it was a billion-dollar company and we were certainly not acquired for a billion dollars. Um, so from an ROI perspective, especially on our, our supporters' capital, um, you know, we had higher aspirations, but it was still a very nice, um, very nice exit. 
Uh, it enabled us to, to be proud of the technology and the team we had built and to place it in another company. It gave the entrepreneurs behind the business uh, a tremendous learning experience. So all in all, we're very, very happy with it. But, um, but yeah, mixed emotions along the way for sure. Now, why did you guys decide to exit? I mean, I think you speak you know, in your book about this and it's it's definitely one of you know one of the big questions that an entrepreneur faces a lot you know almost even as soon as you start getting some traction you know business is all about timing as you know and um, you know you think about well there's the option to get more funding and to build it out there's the option to sell it there's the option to keep on going Um, these are difficult questions um what 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 made you guys decide well this this is the time for us to to seek an exit was it personal you guys were burnt out or was it um you know were there other factors um you know in the mix i think it was a combination of both uh on the personal front um you know we have been burning the midnight oil for four years you know my co-founder and i worked tirelessly throughout the days the weekends and and, and, and over the over the over a number of years, that does take a toll on you. Uh, so there was certainly a personal side to it, but I think the the real reason to to pursue an exit was um, we felt like we could we could grow a lot faster and achieve our objective a lot quicker as a part of a larger organization rather than just being a standalone entity. And so when we sort of looked at our growth rate, our trajectory as an individual company, and we compared that to what would happen if we aligned ourselves with a company with a bigger customer base, for example, what that would do for our own prospects. And, and it sort of naturally made sense to us. You guys didn't think of getting uh, more funding and to build it out yourself? No, we didn't. Um, we had raised enough at that point. And, um, you know, for what we had raised, I think we, we had higher growth trajectory aspirations. Right. So rather than go back and, and, and reformulate um, again, we stumbled upon a, a great relationship with our buyer. I mean, a few aspects in your journey as well, which were, which were quite interesting that I don't think get spoken uh, enough about. And particularly, you, you mentioned, you speak quite a lot about your girlfriend, who's now your wife. Um, and I mean, she seemed like she was a real, a real rock for you in the, in the heady early days of it all. Yeah, she was, uh, I always like to say she was our biggest investor. Uh, she invested her, her love, her heart, her emotion in not only to me, but to the company and our team. Um, she was our biggest advocate. She was always uh, there for me for sure, but also there for my colleagues, uh, hosting events for for them as well. Um, and you know, anyone out there who's who's ever tried to start a business or or has started a business knows there's there's a lot of highs and excitement that goes along with building a company from the ground up, but there's also a lot of lows. And you know, I've always believed that it's how you that the successful entrepreneurs are able to balance the highs with the lows to remain even keeled throughout the journey. And she taught me a lot about that and she, she allowed me to remain even keeled. So she was, she was a huge supporter and, and I've seen it the other way too. I've seen entrepreneurs who are, you know, significantly smarter and more successful than I'll ever be, but there's their loved ones you know, aren't all that supportive. They don't like that lifestyle. They don't uh, understand that risk profile. And that, that takes a toll on the entrepreneur himself or herself. I think it's a yeah. It's I've I've seen that as well. Where 
where partners just aren't empathetic to the journey, you know, and it's fair enough. It's not, it's not their choice. It's not their journey. But at the same time, um, you know, the reality is that the entrepreneurial journey um, is all consuming. I mean, I, I heard an interview the other day with some chap that had, had built out his business and sold it to, um, I don't know if it's with Salesforce or, 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 you know, eventually for a lot, a lot of money. And he said, you know, through all these 10 years or whatever it was, I was always waiting for the time when we would just hit that smooth water and be plain sailing for, for you know, six, eight months. And it just, it just never happened, you know. So it is, it is quite an intense calling and, and you know, the toll um, on, on family and friends is, is pretty significant. I, I uh, went to a talk a few years ago by, by Frank Lowy. You might not know his name, um, but he uh, founded Westfield Shopping Centers in Australia. Sure. And, um, you know, he's one of Australia's uh, most successful entrepreneurs. Post-war started with nothing and now is the biggest shopping center company in the world. And uh, in his talk, in one of the first five minutes, he, he spoke about his wife, you know, and, and how she's been amazing. And one of his, his big boats, actually, which I see on the harbor, the Sydney Harbor every now and then, is, is, is named, named her. So, um, yeah, it I definitely came through as, as uh, you know, a, a, a positive. And also I think what came through as well is I think you were lucky enough to, to be born into a family where your father built a business and you, could see, you saw what was possible with hard work and you saw what was possible by just, um, you know, and I, and I say this in a, in, in a, in a positive sense, an, an ordinary guy just applying himself and working hard, right? Yeah, I've always said we're, we're all a sum of, of our environment. And I was very fortunate enough to be raised by two parents uh, that enabled me to become an entrepreneur. I learned from my father's experiences and my mother uh, taught me everything there was to learn about uh, the nuances of, of education and, 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 and how to grow a business. So I was very lucky and, you know, not everyone is that lucky. And I, and I realized that and I, I very much appreciate that. So... You landed up, I mean, you uh, in Florida now. I'm talking to you in Florida, right? That's correct. So you guys sort of went from New York to Florida to, uh, sorry, New York to Boulder for some of the textile stuff. And, and um, how did you guys land up in Florida? So I, we, we actually started in Philadelphia when I was in business school, went to Boulder. Mm-hmm. Then we actually relocated to New York just given the international um, – the international city that New York is, uh, and, and how that aligned nicely with our international focus, our, our language translation focus. Um, and after we sold the business and actually a little bit before we sold the business, um, you know, my wife and I, uh, we had had enough of the rat race of New York. Um, New York's a fantastic place and I could, I could definitely see myself going back there, uh, in the future. But, um, after having lived there for, you know, eight to 10 years off and on, we both wanted to, uh, try, try something a little bit newer. And, you know, we had talked to a lot of people down here in, in Miami about the growing entrepreneurial culture. Uh, there's certainly a great lifestyle and outdoorsy culture, uh, on the personal side. I like to, I like to take part in, uh, triathlons and, and running events. And there's a lot of that down here, just given the, the, uh, the, the weather. Uh, so we moved down here, uh, earlier this year and, uh, the rest, uh, we, we fell in love and now we're, we're permanent residents. You'd really love Australia, particularly Sydney, and uh, you know it's good weather. Everyone's outdoor lifestyle. Have you ever visited? I'm visiting uh, in March. Oh First well, time. D- well, welcome. Drop us a line, and uh, um, love to show you some of the sites. I think you're going to love it. Perfect. I will definitely be in touch then. What, what's uh, what's next in store for you? 
currently working on the next entrepreneurial venture. Uh, so the last couple of months have been been truly exciting for me, uh, starting a new company and getting to uh, flex some of those muscles in the brain that I haven't uh, tapped into in a while. The, the things that you forget um, you have to do at the early stages. Uh, I'm having a ton of fun uh, taking the next business off the ground. What's the startup scene like in Miami? I visited Miami once. You don't hear that much about Miami um, startups and, and big exits from there. There's that one VR company that's been in the press um, lately, Magic Leap, I think it is. I think they're based in Florida somewhere. But what's the, what's, what's the tech startup scene and startup scene in general like there? You mentioned it's growing. I would say it's burgeoning and growing. Um, there are, you know, Miami is a, a sprawling city. And so, you know, unlike uh, Philadelphia, for example, where there's just so many academic institutions centered in a very small area that there's just so much talent uh, and access to capital. It's a little bit different when you're in a larger city, but there are there are neighborhoods, there are communities, um, incredibly impressive communities down here with entrepreneurship. You just have to seek them out a bit more. Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, if I would think about Philadelphia, New York, San Francisco, uh, Boulder, and, and a handful of other U.S. cities as sort of tier one places to start a company, uh, I would say Miami is is not quite tier one, but but it's on its way. And you know, one of the the main reasons why I wanted to come down here was to play a very small role in in the growth of the entrepreneurial community and also be inspired by, you know, entrepreneurs. Um, from all walks of life, Miami is a very international city, uh, tremendous uh, uh, Latin American imprint here. And so there's a lot to be learned. It's a Yeah, it's a fantastic place. I went, uh, went down there for a weekend, a long weekend when I was in New York for a couple of months last year. And uh, I really what, what surprised me was it, it does feel like a Latin American city. It's fantastic. It is. It's like being abroad, uh, but being in the US, you get the best of both. I did say I got some strange looks though when uh, you know I'm I'm vegetarian most of the time and I got some strange looks when asking for some vegetarian food. It was a little bit different to some of the hipster suburbs of New York with uh, raw food and macrobiotic food and everything. So uh, that was a little bit different. Exactly. You don't want to tell someone you don't want their uh, their empanadas down here. Exactly. Um, Ryan Frankel is the author of The Making of an Entrepreneur, Lessons from a Winding Journey Toward Entrepreneurship. I got through about 49% of your book. I uh, squeaked it in um, over the last couple of days. I look forward to reading the rest. Ryan's also the former CEO and co-founder of Verbalize It. Appreciate you joining us on the show and uh, good luck with the next stage of your journey and uh, please enjoy Australia and reach out to us. Perfect. Thanks for having me on the show and I uh, look forward to talking soon. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. Kate, maybe it's because I'm an entrepreneur um, for my sins, but I never get bored of hearing other people's 
journeys. Everyone is unique. Um, you know, there's obviously common threads, one of which is you have to work really, really hard. One of which is, I always find there's people have surprises, things either go better than they ever expected or probably a little bit worse than they expected. Uh, another common thread is you need your support team as well. Ryan spoke a lot about his wife and and uh, we I spoke with him about that, about the, the support team. But they're all unique in their own way and I enjoy hearing the sort of journey from thought to execution and they were lucky that they actually got an acquisition they got an exit out of it which very few businesses get as well yeah no i, th- I found it interesting too that he um that he made the point that you have to take the ups and the downs you know like it's sort of i feel like the whole entrepreneur thing can sometimes get a little bit it seems really sparkly and amazing but i think people would forget that there's a lot of downsides too that you have to deal with yeah the, like a lot of things in life the glamour is what you know, people notice, you know, even the rock star lifestyle, if you look at famous musicians and, you know, that are on the road, it looks very glamorous, but you speak to any musician that's been on the road and the glamour goes out really quickly, mm. you know. It's like that famous picture of the iceberg. Have you seen that? I think so. People caption it, you know, what people see, it's just the tip and then uh, it's all nice and clear and then underneath the water you see how big it is and they caption that like hard work and perseverance and all that stuff. Yeah, and, and it's, as David Hanemeyer Hansen said in last week's podcast, it's easier than ever to start a business, but he said it's not easy, no. but it's easier, right? Easier and now. It's easier now. And, I mean, you, you grew up in a family with a father that owns a business as well, so you probably have some sense of the ups and downs and the… Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a different industry altogether. Um, it's not a tech business, but it's no. still, I mean, a business is a business. You need more money in than out. You, you have staff issues. You have all those issues. Oh, definitely. It's, it's in- interesting to sort of watch him and learn from uh, like hard work and, and how it pays off and managing people. Which is the trickiest one. Yes. Which is the trickiest one. I mean, interesting today, Facebook, and we're taking a little bit of a, little bit, bit of a digression, but Facebook today reaffirmed Sheryl Sandberg, who's the, I think she's the chief operations officer. I'm not sure what her official title is. Essentially the two I see to Mark Zuckerberg. She said that they're rolling out a whole new bunch of benefits for staff, including I think four months paid paternity and maternity leave. Wow. A whole bunch of um, bereavement leave. So that if someone passes away close to you or even one step away from you. And carers leave as well. A whole bunch of this paid leave. You on know. top of annual leave? On top of annual leave. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So saying that, you know, this, their staff are their biggest asset. And um, they're looking after them. And I think I, I think their their intentions are genuine. But I think it's also, it's also because they want to hang on to their good people. I think it's a competitive Definitely. thing as well, you know. But um, so, you know, even for companies like Facebook, they have to get creative around the staff side of things. It's definitely the trickiest. It's definitely the trickiest side of things. Yeah, I've seen a few um, posts on social media lately of these uh, bigger companies and the sort of uh, packages they give people when they're going on maternity leave. Uh, one from Spotify had... Uh, like a little T-shirt and it said something about welcoming the newest band member and like a little pair of headphones and stuff. So they're really going all out to to make people love their job. 
Look, I think it's great. I think the downside or the challenge, I should rather say, is you have to, as a, as a business, you have to have resources for that. And not all businesses do have resources for that. So um, a lot of these businesses are funded or they're highly profitable. But I think there's definitely value there's definitely value in creating a company that factors in that people have lives. Yeah. You know, um, but you do have to first get escape velocity. And there's a saying in business that, you know, you have to, for four to 10 years, you, you have to work more than ever so that after that, you can pull back and you can yeah. work less than ever. But, you know, to, you have to achieve escape velocity, which means you have to overcompensate and, and, and do a lot. Um, but, yeah, so it was interesting that Ryan grew, grew up um, exposed to that. I also grew up with a father that started a business as well. And, and just as Ryan said, he said that, you know, his father was an ordinary guy that achieved just by working hard and treating his staff well. And it's the same when that's what sort of, you know, seeing my family w- with their business. And um, if someone's listening to this podcast, I promise you that the people that are starting businesses, you're not more stupid than them. It's very unlikely. So go for it. If you've always wanted to, we always say on the podcast, the only person that's not allowed to go for it is Kate because (laughs) (laughs) she's my right-hand person. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I'd always support her. But, um, you know, it's, it's definitely one of the challenges in our industry. We've had two of our team members, two of the technical team members, James and Charles, both start their own businesses. Both went to start their own businesses. So it's definitely a challenge in our yeah. In, in interesting to see how they're going. It's interesting. They, I mean, um, I think they're both going. They're both going pretty well. Both super smart guys. They they are missed in the tech team, so it is a challenge in our industry. Um, but if you listen to this podcast and you've also always wanted to start a business, it's it is easier than ever. And uh, David Hanemeyer Hansen gave some tips last week how to bootstrap it. Which Ryan Frankel is interesting, different to David. is is very pro bootstrapping and going at your own. Ryan had they did raise some money. Okay. And, and they they weren't technical people, so they couldn't code it up themselves. They needed help doing that. Whereas David is a, a super super smart technical person, so um, it it helps if you can actually, in a way, do the work yourself. Yeah, but it's a huge barrier too. You know, you often not always, but often the people with the ideas don't always have the skill set to make them happen. They've got to find someone else to help them, and then you've got to rely on that person and have the money to pay that person, and it's just just snowballs effect. It does, it does, and that's why in the early days for a tech business, if you're the one that can code it, and to learn how to code to prototype is is not is not impossible. You know, you don't have to be the best coder in the world to create a prototype that someone can look at and say, "Wow, I'd love to use that," or even someone to get one person to pay for it. If you just get one person to pay for it. That's a very, very important signal. And you can create things or you can get an outsourced person through Upwork at $5 an hour, $10 an hour to create a prototype. There are ways. You've you've always got options. You've always got options if you're hungry enough. You've always got options. um, There's plenty of design programs too that um, have sort of tried to make the coding process of of websites and uh, prototypes much easier so you don't actually have to touch the code. You just yeah. move elements around the page and that's kind of thing. Yeah, but um, as always, these things are are, are not easy to, to execute on. Um, anyway, that's episode number 80. 
Thank you for joining us. You can head on to the show notes at itsamonkey.com. The single thing that helps us most is if you put a review on iTunes that helps other people discover this podcast. Also tweet us, email us. We love to hear from our listeners and we will chat to you next week. Thank you very much. See you later.